0: You are a child of God. In other words, your deepest identity, your truest self, was formed by God. Bone, breath, body, and soul, all God given and God made. Simply stated, God adores you. James Harnish in his book Making a Difference was awakened to this truth in a new way with the arrival of an adopted grandchild. Harnish's daughter Deborah and husband Dan were at the hospital the day that Maddie was born and then the whole family was gathered together the day they brought her home from the hospital. Now, no one in the family is ever going to forget her birthday, but along with her birthday, Deborah celebrates what she calls Gotcha Day. That was a day a few months later when the judge declared that Maddie was officially theirs and legally confirmed her name. Deborah wrote on her Facebook page, happy gotcha day. This was the day the judge declared that Maddie is stuck with us forever. No take backs. Love this girl like crazy. Can't wait to see who she becomes. God is good. Our psalm this morning is the biblical version of God's gotcha day, no take-backs, no returns, loves you like crazy, and has been present and intentional about that from the beginning. will always be there forever and ever. Our scripture this morning emphatically says that God knows us. In fact, the word know or knowledge appears seven times in 18 verses, the number seven indicating fullness or completion. The psalmist would have us understand that we are intimately, fully, and completely known by God. So real is that connection that you and I are invited to pray. The sheer intimacy of this knowing creates a transparency which keeps us from playing games with ourselves, the kind of games that would excuse our poor behavior or offer permission for us to live life as we want it. Because God sees us so clearly, we're invited to see ourselves the same way God does. A crucial point from the psalmist's perspective is that God's presence is inescapable. And that, my friends, is really good news because God declares in that presence not only that we will be led and held on to, but that even in our struggles, God is willing to be present. We're never lost, nor can we hide. As Paul would later write, for I'm convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When my kids were growing up and I really needed them to listen to me, I would lower myself a bit and say, read my beak. This is a read-my-beak text. Not only can we not hide, you and I are not accidents. We are not simply the result of our parents' natural activity. God's forming of us occurred in our mother's womb, and it's more than a biological thing. We're the result of the will and work of a loving creator who wanted you to be you, me to be me, and we to be God's people. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a knowledge too high for us to comprehend. We are nonetheless part and parcel of this divine relationship. And what matters to God in this relationship is our partnership. Because that's always been the plan from God's good creation. So if we have the offer of such a loving relationship, of such an intentional partnership, don't you wonder why it's so hard to live into it? I think it's because somewhere we got the notion that imperfection equals inadequacy. And how we got there really matters. Brene Brown, a psychologist, defines self esteem as the global evaluation of self worth. How we determine our self esteem is by judging ourselves against others. In this sense, searching for self-worth by constantly comparing ourselves to others means that we're going to fight a losing battle because there's always going to be someone richer or more attractive, more successful than we are. And even when we do manage to feel self-esteem for one golden moment, none of us can hold on to it. Our sense of self-worth bounces around like a ping-pong ball, rising and falling and lockstep with the latest success or failure. As a result, her research indicates that today's society has reached an epidemic rate of narcissism and bullying. Our self-esteem is contingent, on being better, more powerful, more successful, more, 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 more than someone else. If by chance you might think we're beyond that problem, let's just test that theory in you for a minute. If a work evaluation... Oh, it won't be long before Thanksgiving comes up. If that three days' worth of cooking and planning that meal... If the big idea you've just offered to the company and the evaluation of those things comes back, oh, it was okay. It was pretty average. There's not a one of us that wouldn't feel insulted. No one wants to feel average. Our natural response is to be puffed up and therefore to put others down. The psalmist knew a truth we all tend to forget that the only way out of this pit is to find our self worth through recognizing our common humanity, acknowledging our imperfections, and seeing that the way God made us is just right because it's real. Imperfection in God's eyes has never meant inadequacy. In fact, in a song written by Leonard Cohen entitled Anthem, Cohen announces, It's all cracked. That's how the light gets in. Our self-worth must come from a different place. It's got to come from God's gotcha grace. So how is it we're going to get there? First, I think it's through honesty. The power of Psalm 139 is its frankness. God has fearfully and wonderfully made us, which really translates, we are in no way self-made. We are limited, flawed, finite, We know all too well the gap between how God made us and the reality of our actions, behaviors in this life. This week there was an article about a woman named Rita who lives, or actually she's homeless in Seattle. She went into a restaurant because of a health condition and begged to use the restroom, and the hostess refused her. She said, there were times when I had to relieve myself in parks and alleys. No tissue, no privacy. It was so degrading. Rita eventually got herself into some recovery, found a subsidized apartment, and through a case manager, went to one of those lovely shops that helps uh, people come up with donated clothes fit for a work interview. Then Rita went back to the same restaurant in her outfit. And you know, the hostess let her use the bathroom this time. Businesses treat you so terribly, she said, and it has nothing to do with who you are as a person. It's just how you look. And yet businesses have mostly escaped that scrutiny by the way they treat homelessness. Who runs those businesses? Who goes there? We do. We have a difficult time viewing ourselves and each other as God does and always has because if we did, Rita's stories would be rare, not commonplace. The great good news is that God is neither surprised by our brokenness nor discouraged by it either. The psalmist reminds us that God is the seeker in this relationship. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. God's search is thorough and relentless. God follows where we go, what we do when we stand up or lie down. God is there. God knows all those private, past, present, and potential moments. This is a personal, intimate, and unlimited God. Nothing in our lives is off limits for God's knowledge, Secrets are simply impossible. If we really want to praise God, then we need to celebrate the gap between who we are and who God made us to be as nothing more, nothing less than the holiest of opportunity to keep trying. Honesty then makes room for examination. And examination, while it is painful sometimes, isn't that what's critical to every good relationship, especially one with holy implication? The text begins with understanding that God has searched us, and it ends with a plea for God to search us again search us and know us, find out any wicked way in me, see if there is any offense or a hurtful way within me. This conversation that the psalmist was having with God was not about naming the enemy out there, it was about recognizing the enemy in here. His question is never about God's love, but about our human capacity to ignore the demands of that love on our lives. It's introspection and confession that create insight and action. Search me, know me, try me, see my faults. Crack it wide open if that's where the light comes in. N.T. Wright, in his book, After You Believe Why Christian Character Matters, says this, Don't we have to forgive ourselves in order to love each other as God loves us? Forgiveness, after all, is held within our Christian tradition as one of the highest virtues. He goes on to say, we know we don't do it, by and large, but we do think we should. The result, unfortunately, is that we've developed a corollary that is neither love nor forgiveness, namely tolerance. The problem's clear. I can tolerate you without it ever costing me anything very much. I can shrug my shoulders, walk away, and leave you to do your own thing. That admittedly is preferable to my taking you by the throat, shaking you until you agree with me. But he says it certainly is not love. Love affirms the reality of the other person, the other culture, the other experience. Love takes the trouble to get to know the other person, culture, and to find out how the other ticks, what makes something special, and finally, love what's best for that person or culture. It was love, not an arrogant imposition of new standards, my friends, that drove much of the world to stand up against apartheid in South Africa. It was love, not a dewy-eyed dream of abolition of slavery by Wilberforce. It was love, not cultural imperialism, that said you cannot be dehumanizing and society-destroying by burning a surviving widow on her husband's funeral pyre. Nor can we kill the daughter who eloped with a man from a different religion. Love must confront tolerance and insist, as it always does, on a better way, a God-gotcha, God-known, God-examined, cracked-so-the-light-comes-in way, driving our behaviors toward the redemptive quality of God's grace. So, if we can face the honesty and the examination, then what? If grace is our starting point and God's glory is the goal, how do we know what to do when the world goes tilt? I think it's pretty simple it's practice. Many of us remember vividly the day that Captain Sully Sullenberg ditched a plane on the Hudson River after flying through a flock, of ge- a flock of geese that damaged the engines. His calm and his skills saved 155 passengers and crew members. Twenty-nine years of practice made him ready. And what was Captain Sully's response rightly so, at the miraculous landing. He simply said, I was just doing my job. Honesty, examination, and holy practice give us the clarity to bridge the gap between knowing how precious we are in God's sight, how human we are, and having the character that lives into God's redemptive plan. As we've seen the damage from Dorian in the Bahamas and up the US coast, the the damage is catastrophic, no doubt. As soon as the hurricane started building, chef and restaurateur Jose Andreas is there with his nonprofit organization World Central Kitchen. He was in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. Andreas was there, and the minute he could get into Nassau, there were six people with one simple mission, to be ready, to be there for the local government, the whole government of the Bahamas, the NEMA, which is the Bahama FEMA, and to start learning and getting ready for the response. They couldn't get in there, but he had to know what to do. The islands were underwater, so he started thinking totally with an open mind ready to adapt. At the beginning, there was no place to cook. So they took a boat. They took a ship, rather. And for days, they delivered sandwiches by helicopter and then by boat until they could finally begin to cook on the two islands. Sandwiches are high in calories. It's like a present-day MRE. They're light, but they could come with enough nutrition to bring thousands of those sandwiches in helicopter drops. Word was there was a grocery store owner in Marsh Harbor. The roof had blown off of his grocery, so he told everyone that he could see, come to the store and take what you need. It's grace. Those efforts and hundreds more will be living into the gap created by Dorian. They have no doubt what the mission is. It's days ahead of difficulty. They'll have to work hard to keep the impossible scale of it from clouding their thoughts and creating discouragement. But may we pray that even in those cracked open moments, the light will come in and all the keys to genuine humanity reflect the presence of God within us. Do we really want to praise God? Then I invite you this morning to remember who you are. Wonderfully made and imminently fractured and broken. That's how God loves us. Remember whose you are. You are known and treasured by God. Go about caring for and treating God's children like they are the gold God thinks they are. I can't help but believe that's the kind of praise that God gets tickled over. What are you going to do with the God gift that you are? Honest, examination, practice, those are the things that lead to praise. Amen. Would you rise and join in our closing hymn?